0: I'm a staff astronomer at the Keck Observatory, which is uh, located on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. I get to work with some of the coolest tech on the planet as part of my job. And, you know, I'm a lifelong amateur astronomer as well. And so for me, this is just, it's fantastic. The scientific power of an observatory comes from its instrumentation. Like, do you have the tools to do these measurements that the actual, that the scientist wants to do? to try and build a very, very low-cost automatic observatory that could do transiting exoplanet searches.
1: Josh Wallawender, a staff astronomer at the Keck Observatory, joins us today to give us a glimpse inside the world of professional astronomy. He is also involved in Project Panoptes, a citizen science initiative designed to help amateur astronomers get involved in the hunt for transiting exoplanets. So, let's get started. Hello everyone and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Okay, Josh, I want to welcome you to our humble little podcast. I have talked to you before in a hangout on Deep Astronomy uh, where we featured the uh, Project Panop- Panoptes uh Citizen Science Initiative that you have that you're involved in, and I met you at Neef. I was wandering around and I saw these two astronomers sitting at a table. Uh, we and you had these these posters up about what you were doing, and I asked you if you'd like to be on the uh, the, the hangouts, and you said yes. And so you you were kind enough to uh, to do that. But now you're here on our podcast, and we're going to talk a little bit. I think today, among other things, about what it's like to be. A professional astronomer. Um, you're a staff astronomer at Keck. So, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what that is like? And that you live in Hawaii, presumably. That's where Keck is
0: Where Keck is is on Mauna Kea. Uh, tell us what that's like. Yeah, thanks, Tony. I'm glad to be here. Uh, yeah, so I'm a I'm a staff astronomer at the Keck Observatory, which is uh, located on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Um, and I've been working at Keck for almost five years now. Um, I actually have worked on or around Mount Ikea for the last almost 15. So um, I worked at some of the other facilities here and at the University of Hawaii. But I thought it would be fun to, you know, have a little conversation here on the podcast about, you know, not just what it's like being a professional astronomer, but specifically about the observatory operations side. Because, you know, I get to work with some of the coolest tech on the planet as part of my job. And you know, I'm a lifelong amateur astronomer as well, and so for me, this is just—it's fantastic. Wow, you've been so you've been on Hawaii for a long time now. Hawaii, what's great? We're talking
1: about the Big Island here. Uh, yes, that's right. The Big Island is actually—it's like a main industry on that island, isn't it? Astronomy. It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, Hawaii, the, the main industry anywhere is tourism, um, and there's um, you know, military presence with the military bases. But on the Big Island, astronomy is one of our main industries. Um, there's uh, something like 400 people directly employed by the observatories and then um, wow. a whole bunch more wow, at contractors and other services that serve the observatories but aren't directly employed. And, you know, the whole population of the island, I mean, it's a fairly rural place. The Big Island is by far the biggest of the Hawaiian islands. You can actually take all the other Hawaiian islands and put them inside the Big Island. Um, but it's only got about 200,000 people, I think, just under. Um, so it's a lot smaller. I mean, Oahu, uh, where the city of Honolulu is, is uh, well over a million people. So this is a very rural location. Yeah, where most people go it, it
1: is Oahu. They, either that or Maui, they tend to go to those one of those two islands. and. And uh, it's really not very crowded at all. I love, that's my favorite place to go when I'm in Hawaii is actually Hilo. I like this, the town of Hilo. Uh, but the whole atmosphere there, it's not it's not so blatantly touristy there. And and there's lots of local stuff that you can see and do. And it's really very low key. It's one of my favorite things. Yeah,
0: that's here. what I really love about it. I lived in Hilo for nearly 10 years. And um, I, what I love about the Big Island is that it's big enough that there's variety. Um, You know, Hilo and that side of the island, it's uh, the windward side, so it gets all the the rainfall. So Hilo is basically a rainforest. Um, So it doesn't get a lot of tourism as a result. Um, But if you like that, perfect. If you wanna go someplace that's got warm, sunny arcs of white sandy beach, you pop over to the Kona side, which is on the leeward side, gets a lot of sun. And you have that. You've got a few big resorts here if you want to go have that experience. You've got rural areas where you can go hiking up in the mountains in a forest. You've got the Volcano National Park. So it's it's an island, but you're not going to feel claustrophobic. What's the name of the volcano that's at, the, it's at that national park? I forgot the name of it. Kilauea. So, in fact, Kilauea, uh, Kilauea, Kilauea just started erupting again just over a month ago. So that was a bit of excitement here. Yeah, it's
2: creating creating new real estate all the time on Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yep. So, Josh, a
2: big, I mean, because it's uh, Keck is way up on the mountain. I mean, it's it's way up there. Uh, it's such a gigantic observatory, um, sev- several observatories, right? Um, so, I guess a big portion of your day, unless unless a lot of the job is done remotely, has to just be going up and down the mountain.
0: Well, um, so that gets into a little bit of, about how we operate, and it's it's kind of interesting. So. Um, the observatory itself, and as you sort of alluded to, there's two telescopes. Keck has a twin 10-meter telescopes up on the summit of Mount Akeia, Um, And the summit itself is about 13,800 feet elevation, where the, the telescopes are located just below that. We're at 13, six and change, if I remember correctly. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really hard to work up there. I mean, you've got about 60% of the oxygen that you would have at sea level. So it, it is a challenge. It's not impossible, but, um, you have to be a little careful. Um, yeah, that's over two miles. Result, up, right?
2: Is my math right there? Yeah. I mean, isn't it roughly 5,000 feet is a mile and yep. something like that. And you're way
0: up there. Yeah. Yep.
2: Yeah.
1: Close to three.
0: Oh. So, <laughs> you know, as a result of, of that, we actually try to do as much as possible remotely. And in fact, um, my job is almost entirely remote. So I work out of the, uh, headquarters facility, which is in the town of Waimea, up on the north end of the island. And Waimea is, quote unquote, high elevation for communities in Hawaii, but it's still, the town is only, I think, about 2,700 feet elevation. Um, So sadly, I actually don't go up to the summit very often. Um, Obviously, with the, the pandemic, things have changed in the last year or so, but that aside, I would normally go up to the summit Maybe once a month, give or take, uh, to, to go work with some of the technicians and engineers up there. But most of my work is actually done remotely.
2: And that's, that's interesting because I guess really you could you could do this work then from anywhere in the world. You don't necessarily have to be in Hawaii.
0: Yeah, that's right. So um, well, let, let me step back and talk a little bit about, about the operations because you've alluded to doing this from anywhere in the world. And we are actually now uh, having observers use our telescope from literally anywhere in the world. Um, and again, that's, that's due to the, the pandemic that we did have some facilities uh, prior to that. The way this works is that the Keck Observatory is a nonprofit organization, and it's, it's there to operate the facility. And it's funded by a, a consortium of organizations and universities who then get to allocate the time on the telescope to the scientists who work at those facilities. So, Keck, our primary partners are uh, the University of California System, uh, Caltech, NASA, which means that anybody in the U.S. has access to time through NASA, and the University of Hawaii is sort of the host organization who uh, sort of operates the Mauna Kea facility and and, uh, all of the infrastructure around the mountain. Um, We have a few other partners who join in through partnerships with Caltech. That includes uh, Notre Dame, Northwestern University. Yale, and I think Swinburne University in Australia right now. Um, So what that means is that astronomers at those institutions, if they have a good idea, they write a proposal and they submit it to a a committee of other astronomers that says, I have a great idea. I want to observe this object or this type of objects with Keck using this instrument. It's going to take me two nights and uh, you should give me the time because I'm going to learn all this amazing stuff. And then the the local tax from each of those institutions look at those proposals. And then, you know, sadly, there's only so many nights in a year and we get a lot more proposals than there are nights. In fact, we're oversubscribed around five to one typically. So the astronomer who gets assigned time will get assigned a particular night. Your day is, you know, January 29th. Um, And then when you do that, the observatory will work with you to help prepare your observations, and that's really where I come in. So my job at the observatory, I have a background in astronomy, I have a PhD in astronomy, I've done research. And so it's my job to know both the research side of things so that I can sort of work with the, the visiting astronomer and understand what they're trying to do, but also be the local expert. I know all the intricacies and all the little you know, ins and outs of our instrumentation. And so I can help them make use of their time as efficiently as possible because we don't want to waste any time at night. You know, that's really our goal. We try and keep any wasted time at night to an absolute minimum because it is so precious because it's so oversubscribed.
2: And it would be an easy thing for people to do that don't see what you see every single day to have this great idea. But then when it comes to implementation, even a small mistake. It's like when your time is that valuable and you have this one night, if it's not cloudy, right, it's like you you can't afford to give up those precious hours. So they have to have you there to to make sure that, you know, not only the idea is in line with what's possible, but also the execution of that idea. It's fascinating.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, thats that's really what it comes down to. So yeah, so I get to work with astronomers all over the world. And, uh, you know, recently, we all those astronomers have been observing from, you know, remotely, we haven't been able to host anyone at our facility. Um, normally, they would uh, have the option of either coming here to Waimea in Hawaii, they would observe from the headquarters, not from the summit, because again, it's really hard to work at the summit, not everybody can handle the altitude. Um, and normally, we would have uh, observing rooms set up at those member institutions but with the pandemic we haven't had that so we've had people observing from basically at home for for the last nine or ten months and you know something i think that's that's been true for a while now but i think that a lot of people
1: have taken the trouble to go to the observatory because by the time that you've gone through the time allocation committee by the time you've gotten your telescope time allocated to you and the time that you get your data, there's a lot going on. And people I think traveled to the observatory just so they can make sure they get their data. Because when I observed at the Blanco telescope in Chile, we had telescope time. We went there and we went every night to the dome. But really what we did was talk to the observers while they took all the data for us. And we were looking at it as it came off, doing some uh, processing right on the fly, but really, if I'm being honest, we didn't actually have to be there. We could have just gotten the data as soon as it was taken off the telescope. Of course, you know, this was like 2007 or eight, So, you know, internet wasn't like gigabit speeds or anything, but you could, you know, presumably get it relatively quickly. I mean, so this is kind of a culminating, I think the pandemic, and you can tell me if you agree or not, but uh, uh, the pandemic kind of pushed us into this where, I don't think we really actually had to be sitting underneath the telescope dome uh, while our data was
0: taken, right? Yeah, I mean, the pandemic really has uh, triggered a lot of these conversations. And, uh, you know, we'd already been moving that way prior to the pandemic. We had about 60% of our observations were taking place at the home institution. So in a room set up at Caltech or some other university Specifically for observing at Keck, they got all the computers set up in exactly the way we specify all this stuff, um, and so we'd been doing quote unquote remote observing for quite a while, but it was a it was a shift for us to you know change this mode where it's like well you're at home let's get you connected and let's you know do what we can and and we'll deal with the vagaries of everybody's home internet, but at the same time you know. Observers miss coming out, and and we miss having them. I mean, I I love having those late-night conversations with observers and finding out about their science. (laughs) Yeah, Um, It's funny you mentioned Blanco. I'll tell this story. So when I was in graduate school, I was a a grad student at the University of Colorado. So for my thesis, I used data from the male 4-meter at Kitt Peak and a little bit from the Blanco, which you just mentioned. And I remember talking to my uh, thesis advisor, John Bally, who had gone down to Blanco for a run. And because of scheduling uh, just issues, he had gotten like four nights on the telescope, but it was every other night interleaved with another program. And, you know, at first this was a kind of a hassle because you got to be there twice as long, blah, blah, blah. But it turns out that taking a night of data... Having a full day to really get into it, look at it, see what you had, and then adapt continuously worked out really well. He actually really enjoyed that. Oh, so it was kind of a good – worked out good in the end, huh? <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, that's pretty I, – I love John Ballet. I had him for a couple of my classes. He's a really good instructor too. So you you work at Keck. You the, anybody who's ever looked at the pictures of the observatory and the telescope are immediately reminded of JWST because you've got that segmented primary mirror, and you had it way before it was cool. Uh, what is the the cool the best thing about the what the but you said you get yeah, to work with yeah, a lot of really great to
2: people that that don't know. Like, like, Tony, I know you're very familiar with it, but what about listeners that this is the first time they've ever heard of Keck, um, which is probably rare for our, our listeners, but I mean, with it being one of the most iconic telescopes in the world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, describe it for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, so the Keck telescope, I think iconic is the right term, and it's, it's really just a fantastic place to work because you're interacting with the best scientists in the world. Um, So I'll I'll tell another little story here, which is, um, so just this past year, the Nobel Prize in physics was given out to, among other people, Andrea Gez at uh, UCLA for her work uh, studying the motion of stars around the galactic center, which was revealing properties and frankly proving the existence of the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way. And all of her observations were done at Keck. She's been coming to Keck for at least 20 years. Andrea now has this really big team uh, working on this project, and every few years uh, when they get observing time, she brings the entire team out, which is like maybe one or two dozen people, and they'll spend um, a week or two at the observatory. They'll do their observations, but it's also a chance for the whole team to get away from all the distractions of the office, from committee meetings for this, that, and the other, they basically take over one of our big meeting rooms and they have this big marathon session where they do science and really focus on science. And then they go and do their observations at night. Um, so again, it's one advantage coming out, but then for us, like we get to interact with some of the greatest minds in the field. Um, for me personally, some other cool things, I sort of mentioned this already. I get to work with some of the coolest tech on the planet, right? I mean, as I'm a lifelong amateur astronomer too, I got hooked as a kid. Um, and I built telescopes. I still go out and observe with telescopes um, and working with just the really cool instruments. So at, at a major research observatory, the the telescope does this very, very important job of collecting light and bringing it to a focus. But when you come at it from the point of view of a scientist, what the scientist really wants to do is they want to make a measurement. They want to They want to learn something about the universe. It could be brightness position it can be you know spectroscopy and it's the instrument that does that measurement and actually the the scientific power of an observatory comes from its instrumentation like do you have the tools to do these measurements that the actual that the scientist wants to do and so at keck we have two telescopes but we have 10 instruments um and we're constantly um Moving them on and off the telescope so that different astronomers can use different instruments on different nights. And one of my jobs as a staff astronomer is um, you get assigned one or more instruments that you're the instrument scientist for. So that means you're supposed to be the person who is keeping an eye on it, making sure that that instrument is performing as well as it absolutely can. You interact, uh, you coordinate with the engineers and technicians who know all the details. You coordinate with the software engineers who can help you with the control systems or the data analysis side of things. But your job is to have that big picture view and to make sure that the instrument is doing its job, which is getting science and the best science that we can get out of it. And so that's really cool too. And as somebody who comes at it from the amateur astronomy world, getting a play with the cool toys is is lots of fun. Do you have an instrument that's that's yours? Yeah. So I'm the the instrument scientist for an instrument called MOSFIRE, um, and I can't quite remember what the acronym stands for. Uh, Ooh, let me do
1: it. Multi-Object mul- Spectrograph for Infrared Exploration. That's it. You got it. Um, oh. So
0: MOSFIRE oh. is a very cool instrument. And Ooh, let me do it. what it is, it's a spectrograph. <laughs>
2: I'm sorry, Josh. Uh, Tony no Tony worries. kills me, man. He's that kid in the back of the class that like literally waves his arm in the air to get the teacher to let him talk.
1: Yeah, that's right. Oh,
0: I know this one. Can I say?
2: Please continue, Josh.
0: So Mossfire is is a really cool instrument. Um, so what it is, it's an infrared spectrograph. And so it takes the light from from the universe and it breaks it up into its component spectrum. And it's designed to work at wavelengths longer than what our eyes can see. What makes it challenging to do this in the infrared is that when you're working at these wavelengths, and, and MOSFIRE works from about roughly one micron wavelength, which is about two times as long as the wavelengths that your eyes see, up to two and a half microns. And especially towards the longer end of that, um, you're getting into the thermal infrared. So anything that is warm is glowing in infrared light. So when you try and do infrared astronomy it's kind of like trying to do you know the visual astronomy that we think of but your telescope is coated with glow in the dark paint like everything is glowing the the truss structures the optics the mirror itself is glowing so everything about the telescope and the instrument is glowing so what you do in order to combat this is that the instrument itself is enclosed in a doer which is basically a big you know vacuum chamber, and you cool everything in that door down to seventy-seven Kelvin, or well, you cool the detector to seventy-seven Kelvin. You cool the rest of the optical bench down to somewhere around hundred Kelvin. So what that means is it's about a hundred degrees Celsius above absolute zero. So it's very very cold, so it doesn't emit as much light as background for your observations. Um, so that actually makes these instruments a little hard to work on. You can't you can't just go in there and, and turn a screw, right? I mean you've got to warm it up break vacuum, do what you need to do, you know, and then reverse all that process. And that's really challenging. Fire is, you know, very, very well designed and we don't have to go into it almost ever. And one of the reasons we don't is that it has something that is almost completely unique at the front, which is, um, a cryogenic slip mask unit. So what that means is, it's got a set of movable bars in the front that are again operating at these cryogenic temperatures. They can move into the focal plane of the telescope and form slits anywhere you want within the area that the instrument is looking at. And so what that means is that you can create a spectrograph that can put slits on multiple objects at the same time. So rather than taking the spectra of just one thing at a time, we can take the spectra of many things at a time um, and there's 46 of these configurable slits. So we can get, in principle, up to 46 objects all in one observation because of this special cryogenic slit mask unit. So this is where the multi-object spectroscopy comes in from the MOS part of the name.
1: Wow, I'm trying to visualize that. So in, over the image plane, you've got different slits that you can put together. And, and just anywhere there happens to be a star or wherever it is you're looking at, you can open up a slit and, and take that spectra.
0: Exactly. And so the astronomer who's using this You know, it gets used a lot, actually, for looking at very, very distant galaxy clusters, some of the most distant things in the universe. And so when you look at a galaxy cluster with this, you'll start with some very, very deep image, you know, potentially like a Hubble Space Telescope image or something. And you work with a piece of software that goes with the instrument and you can feed it like, here's all the objects I want to look at, sort of give them a little bit of a priority. And it'll come back and say, well, here's a configuration that'll place the slits on the most number of things possible at one time given the layout of these objects and the constraints of the instrument. And then you can take that and when you come to the the instrument you load that file in and it moves those bars into position and you can take your observations and you get, you know, dozens of spectra all at one time.
2: So the the reflective elements inside this system is everything then 24 karat gold.
0: So with Mosfire, it uses a mix of uh, mirrors and lenses inside the instrument, and some of the the lenses that work at uh, infrared wavelengths can get pretty interesting. There are some some rather bizarre glass types in this. I, I don't remember all the details, but I remember we had to look into this uh, at one point a few years ago, and there are some some very challenging uh, glass types that are hard to polish because they are toxic to humans. So you have to polish them in a very, very safe way. But they're the only thing, you know, it's the equivalent of like an FPL 53 or an OK4 mm-hmm. for your apo refractor, but it's for this bizarre infrared wavelength.
2: Yeah, I was curious if there was something more specific. I know that, uh, you know, we, we see a lot of um, things come through on our pro services department, but it's always smaller stuff, you know, 20 inch scopes, 24 or, or 16s. We see a lot of 16s. But anytime they're trying to push into the IR, um, they always drop the aluminum coatings in, and go to gold coatings. And, um, you know, it's super fragile, obviously, because it's so thin. Um, but with this and being cooled so much, I didn't even know if that was a possibility or, or what what you were doing there. And then, I mean, the whole thing just sounds so complex. Having to have this sealed to operate is just like, it's hard for me to even imagine what that looks like. How that works you know
0: yeah it's it's really so i don't know what the reflective coatings are inside mossfire i've never tried to find out um but you're you're right about uh, you know you you pick different coatings at different wavelengths mm-hmm. um and that actually applies back to the main telescope as well um so the keck telescope we're actually the the primary and secondary mirrors are aluminum coated just like you know amateur reflective telescopes You can do slightly better in the infrared with silver coatings, but silver is a little more delicate. It degrades more easily, so you have to do some sort of protective overcoats. Um, In fact, uh, the Gemini telescope, which is um, the Gemini North telescope is our neighbor on Mauna Kea, they use a protected silver for their primary because they're optimized for the infrared and especially pushing further out than this, what we call the K band at two and a half microns. Um, pushing out to longer wavelengths that becomes even more important but we actually use aluminum for the main telescope just like you guys do gold is really good when you push even longer um, but you would give up all of your 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 good characteristics at visible wavelengths and since most research telescopes they want to be usable at multiple wavelengths so keck has instruments that work um from the very, very edge of the blue, you know the atmospheric transmission, and because we're at such high elevation, we can actually work uh, down close to 300 nanometers, which is you know, you know, right at the edge of atmospheric transmission.
2: Because you're above, you're saying so much atmosphere. Is that what you're saying? Because you're above so much of it that you can you can get down to that. It's not absorbed
0: in the atmosphere. Right, and because the the air on Mauna Kea is so dry and so clear and so clean, yeah. we can wow. we can work down to bluer wavelengths than than a lot of other facilities. I think at Keck, our longest wavelength instrument now goes out to about five and a half microns. We've worked wow. out past 10 before, um, but it gets really hard when you get out to sort of five and especially 10 and 20 microns. That's really hard to do from the ground. Um, it, doing that sort of wavelength from the ground is kind of like trying to do optical astronomy during the day. Everything's just blindingly bright. And your object is fainter than all the backgrounds by a huge factor.
2: This is unbelievable technology to me. You know, just being immersed in the amateur world every day and and knowing like what's available to amateur, I'm amazed, just absolutely blown away. We talk about it on this podcast all the time at how far the technology has come, especially in the last five years, just the different filters that are available in the camera technology is unbelievable now. But trying to imagine with telescopes this size and with this capability, and especially in this location, the type of detectors you have to be using, I bet the photo site's probably the size of a stamp each, right? Like every (laughs) pixel, that probably has to be gigantic in order to not just
0: drastically oversample everything. How big are the Keck telescopes? So the Keck telescopes are 10 meter diameter and the focal length uh, were F-15, so you've got uh, 150 meters of focal length so you know if you were to just slap a detector right at the f-15 focus you're right you would be massively oversampled for most normal pixels now we you know professional astronomers think of you know 15 micron pixels as being small you know because the telescopes are usually so large focal lengths are so large that you want to have that good sampling so you want larger pixels um for our instruments at Keck, so if you take the, the visible light instruments, um, so there's one called l which essentially does almost the same thing as MOSFIRE, but does it at visible wavelengths. When you build a spectrograph, almost every design has what's called re-imaging optics. So basically, you know the focal plane of the telescope is there, and that's where you put your slit or your, your multi-object mask. And then the instrument itself essentially has a, a set of lenses or mirrors in it which re-image that onto the detector after passing it through a prism or a grating or something to to disperse the light into its its rainbow of light. Um, But the advantage doing that is that those re-imaging optics can essentially act as focal reducers. So essentially, we're doing a lot of focal reduction in order to get good pixel sampling. Now, of course, also for us, uh, one of the advantages of Mauna Kea is that we get exceptional seeing. Um, so just, I was on a night, um, a few weeks ago and we were doing our focus and this is at infrared wavelengths, um, sort of at the one and a half micron range. And the seeing is a little bit better at those wavelengths than an optical, but we were getting uh, full width half maxes of 0.38 arc seconds. Unbelievable. And that was, you know, that was good. It wasn't the greatest anybody <laughs> yeah, had ever seen, pretty but it was decent. Pretty... That's less than a half an arc second. That's pretty That's, yeah. pretty good.
2: Like, that's decent. It's a pretty decent <laughs> yeah. night. Nothing to write home about, but at least we turned the the scope on. At least everybody listening to this right now, I know, is just like it. It takes a lot anymore. I I always talk about how much I just absolutely love my job, what I do every day. Takes a lot to get me jealous of someone else's job, but you are achieving it. Well,
0: this is amazing. uh, Thank you. I I appreciate that.
2: This, I mean, a ten meter telescope. I I feel like you guys are doing a disservice by calling it that. You should call it the thirty two foot telescope. You know, or the four hundred inch, because that yeah, I mean, it's so big thirty two point eight feet across.
0: Yeah, it is really amazing to stand in the dome next to this this structure, this this telescope, and to watch it move around. And I mean, and you have two, so of them. yeah, there there are two, which is also kind of astonishing. Um, you know, so I grew up uh, in Southern California in San Diego. And, and as a kid, I got interested in astronomy as part of the local uh, astronomy club. And as a kid, probably 13 years old, give or take, I got to go on a tour of the Palomar Telescope, the, the five meter, the 200 inch. And I remember at the time, just that blew my mind. And, you know, to think that, you know, here we are with Keck telescopes and, you know, mirror twice the diameter, so four times the collecting area. But what's amazing to me about that transition, you know, I mean, Palomar was finished in the 40s, right? So it's, it's an old school design. It's the equatorial yoke mount. And Keck is this modern altaz design. What's amazing to me is that the domes for Palomar and Keck are basically the same size. And that's because the Keck telescope, we've got a really fast primary mirror, so the tube is short. And with an altaz mount, you've got a very compact structure inside the dome right. compared to Palomar. So as you're walking around inside the Palomar Dome and looking at the the Hale 5 meter and walking around inside the Keck Dome, looking at the here, you're basically in the same size building. And that's just yeah. the march of technology.
2: And to give to give people an idea of the size of this and why it's so amazing, the Hubble Space Telescope is roughly the size of like a Greyhound bus. It's big. It's huge. And um, it's one fourth of the size of one of these Keck telescopes, you know, it is, it's a, it's an eight foot across telescope. These are 32. It's, it's actually under eight feet. Um, in its primary, these are 32.8 feet across. It is just so hard to fathom how big these things are.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I said, standing in the dome is just is one of those experiences that is, you know, I, it still gives me shivers. Can we, you yeah. talk a little bit about the um, adaptive
1: optic system on Keck? Because you guys have one of the foremost uh, systems for compensating for the atmosphere. Uh, can you tell a little bit about what that is and, and,
2: and what your systems are like on the uh, Yeah, it's Keck? still currently the gold standard, right? Isn't Keck still the gold standard for AO?
0: Um, yes and no. I mean, there's now a lot of branches of adaptive optics, um, and so there's an enormous amount of detail here, which I will gloss over. I am not an AO specialist. Roughly, what what you do with adaptive optics is, you know, the the atmosphere is distorting the light as it comes down, goes through the telescope. But in principle, if you could measure what those distortions were, and then you take that light. And you, you bounce it off of a mirror, which is um, essentially a very, very thin membrane that you can move and change its shape very, very quickly, then you can essentially unwarp the, the wavefront that's coming in and resharpen the image. You know, the, the cartoons that you can look up on the web of of how this work make it look, well, relatively simple. The reality is very, very complicated. Um, you need to measure and then correct the the distortion um, hundreds, actually preferably thousands of times per second, in order for this to have a big effect. And there's lots of different systems these days. It's a it's becoming a more mature technology, but it's it's not a um, it's not a cure all. So, for example, um, at Keck, roughly a third of the time we use adaptive optics. So in fact, the MOSFIRE instrument, which I talked about before, does not use it. It is a natural seeing instrument. And the reasons for this are are a fewfold. So first of all, adaptive optics, um, for the sort of classical adaptive optics I've talked about, can only correct a tiny patch of sky. So if you measure the distortions from, say, a reference star or a laser guide star, those distortions that are being caused by atmosphere only apply to things within maybe a 30-ish arc second patch of sky. So if you want a field of view larger than 30 arc seconds, adaptive optics isn't going to help you. There is an oncoming technology called um, ground layer adaptive optics. There's also something called multi-conjugate adaptive optics, which will sort of address this a little bit. But for the most part, if you want wide fields of view, adaptive optics, at least with the current technology, does not help you because it only corrects a tiny, tiny patch of sky. And it's also complicated. I mean, it's, we have the the adaptive optics system at Keck we have one on Keck one telescope one on Keck two telescope they uh, sit on a on an optics bench that's probably oh, I wish I had the exact size it's probably two or three meters across and it's it's just chock full of mirrors and lenses and actuators and components um, so it, it actually takes a lot to do adaptive optics effectively but for those um, for those science cases where it's really useful it is amazing so for example i mentioned uh, the the research being done by andrea gez her team uses adaptive optics in the infrared to look at the galactic center so the infrared allows you to see through all the obscuring dust between us and the center of the galaxy and essentially sharpen up the image so that you can measure the positions of those stars very accurately watch their orbits and then Given our understanding of gravity, you can learn about the black hole that they're all orbiting around. Other uses of adaptive optics. Um, actually, I got to tell you this story. I used to work at the Subaru Telescope, which is the National Observatory of Japan. Again, it's it's our neighbor up there on Mount Kea. When I left, I saw some collaborators that use the telescope. So at one point, I was scheduled to do some science observations with Subaru. But I was observing in the second half of the night. They split it up in half night sometimes, so do we. And Subaru at the time, this is before the pandemic, you had to go to the summit to observe. So I was up on the summit, but first half observing was going on. So I was kind of just killing time. So I'm an amateur astronomer. I wandered outside, you know, enjoying the night sky. And I wandered over to the Keck telescope and just sat down with the the telescope operator Keck who I obviously knew and was watching observations. They were using an instrument that I don't normally uh, support. And what the team was doing was looking at jupiter's moon io and they're using the adaptive optic system and a and a infrared camera called Nerk 2 and they were imaging io at infrared wavelengths and i i had to do this i grabbed some cell phone pictures just to the screen as we were sitting there because first of all they go to a calibration star and no kidding diffraction rings about a star in a 10 meter telescope is kind of cool to look at <laughs> and then we went to io and Io, of course, resolves into a nice disk, right? So all of a sudden, you can, you can resolve the disk of Io. And in the infrared, there's about three or four bright dots on it. And these were active volcanoes erupting on Io while we were watching. And that's what this research team does. This is Imke de Potter's team at Berkeley. They study volcanism on Io. Because it actually tells you something about the interior structure of the moon and about how the tides from Jupiter uh, influence the moon and actually sort of heat it up and cause this volcanism, and that was just a really cool moment to just be sort of casually sitting there. I'm I'm not working, so I'm not you know trying to make sure everything's going perfectly or anything, and just sit there and like, wow, that's a diffraction ring on a ten meter telescope. It's a three or four microns, so it's you know not not visible light, and then that is an active volcano erupting on another world and i'm watching it live
2: yeah. it, it makes it a place instead of just an object when you yes. can see that that's happening right now the perspective changes entirely i've never seen anything like that but i mean i just just hearing your story it's like if you can walk in and watch these things happening there's no way not to sit back and realize like that is a place that you could actually be you wouldn't want to be not on an erupting volcano, but you could. And the fact that you can see this in real time is unbelievable. Yeah, those those moments that you describe just can't be. They're just
1: precious because you're usually so busy up there on the mountain that you don't get time to do anything else but what you're there to do. And to be able to have time to look up and to just appreciate what others are doing, it's uh, it's amazing time to just you know soak it all in. <laughs> so that's a cool story you said that when adaptive optics is used, um, it does very well over narrow fields of view. How does it compare to say what space telescopes can give you without adapt? They don't need it obviously because there's no atmosphere. Do they compare comparably or are they, uh, is is space telescope still got an edge on them? How does it compare?
0: So that's a good question. And actually it, it depends a lot on some of the details. Interestingly, uh, the keck adaptive optic system when we're working at these sort of infrared wavelengths and that's where most of these adaptive optic systems work well at these sort of uh slightly longer wavelengths everything gets a little bit longer because your your margin for error is comparable to the wavelength of the light you're looking at just like you know your margin for error on figuring a telescope mirror right you want quarter wave or 10th wave that's how you measure the error. well if your wavelengths are two three four five microns that's a lot easier than if they're half a micron, which they are at visible light. And so at these infrared wavelengths, the, you know, the diffraction limit of Keck is the same or similar to the diffraction limit of Hubble at visible wavelengths. So they're very, very complementary. In fact, both the Hubble Space Telescope and the Keck Observatory came online at about the same time in the early 1990s. And they were used together a lot. There was a whole lot of research papers that came out where people would do, say, like an imaging uh, observation with Hubble. You get this, this exquisite detail of visible light. You can see these distant galaxies, whether, you know, maybe in the Hubble Deep Field. But then if you wanted to follow up on that with spectroscopy, 2.4 meters is just, you know, going to be really, really difficult to get as much as many photons as you need to get a good spectrum, but a 10 meter telescope can. And so there was a, an enormous amount of synergy between Keck and Hubble early on. And so it's it's not really a like which one does it better. It's like they each have their, their own strength and they get used together.
1: That's a really good point. And the, it's still being done even now because right now we've got uh, TESS up there with the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite that is looking at candidate exoplanet worlds and transits and then ground-based observatories such as keck follow up with those candidates to turn them into confirmed exoplanets is is, and so that's another example of a really good synergy between space-based observatories and ground-based observatories does keck do much of that do they do much follow-up observations on exoplanets from like uh uh, Kepler objects of interest or TESS objects of interest, things
0: like that? We actually do an enormous amount of exactly that work. So there's, there's a group uh, that uses Keck called the California Planet Search. And it, it started smaller, but it has grown to be people at universities all over the world. But it started at Caltech and UC. Um, and so these folks all apply for Keck time to their, their local TAC and then pool it together and then, as this huge collaboration, they do this precision radial velocity observations, where you can look at. They've been monitoring some stars for multiple decades now, but they also do a lot of work following up, especially on Kepler, but now on Tess, um, looking at the the transiting planets because the transit, how much the the light uh, dims when the planet passes in front of the star, tells you about the size of the planet. You know how what's the diameter of the planet because it's a just blocking the light, but the radial velocity is telling you about the gravitational wobble induced in the planets in the in the parent star, and that gives you mass. If you've got size and you've got mass, that means you've got density, and density tells you something about composition. You can, you know, start to make inferences about: is this a, a gas giant? Is this a rocky planet? Things like that, and so. Um, we actually spend a whole lot of time with Keck doing exactly this sort of observation. And there's an instrument uh, that was one of the first light instruments on Keck called HiRes, res the high-resolution a shell spectrograph. HiRes is an amazing instrument. It sits on the Keck 1 telescope, and it's this giant box, basically, on the Naismith platform. So it's, it's sitting right on the elevation bearing, essentially, of the telescope. And it's, it's big enough. If you were to move this to like San Francisco or New York, you could rent it out as a, as a studio apartment for a good amount of money. It's huge. Um, and what it does is it breaks up the light of the star into a spectrum, but it works at very, very high spectral resolution so you can detect a very, very fine wobble. And they've been doing that. And in fact, for most of the history of this sort of exoplanet studies, the vast, vast majority of the exoplanets that we knew of were either directly discovered with high res, or were confirmed with high res and Keck. So this group uh, has done an enormous amount of work, and in fact, um, I'm working with that group right now. So the other thing we do at the observatory is we've got new instruments. You know, new technology is being you know uh, you know developed at all times, and we work with groups building new instruments to help interface them with the observatory. That group is building a follow-on instrument that is specifically for Looking at this radial velocity signature of exoplanets, and they're building an instrument called the Keck Planet Finder, which is another one of these mind-blowing pieces of technology, right? So even with a very, very high-resolution spectrograph, the wobble you're trying to detect is minuscule. It's very, very hard to detect. And and our high-res instrument was never designed to do this. It was actually designed, one of the major science cases, to look at very, very distant quasars. But they have, have found a way to work with it in such a way they can do this this research. But it's very hard because you know as the temperature changes a little bit, everything expands and contracts, you have to make sure that you're not seeing the expansion contraction of your own instrument as opposed to the wobble in the, the star. So the way that the KPF instrument will address this, at least in part, is that the instrument itself will be in a sort of enclosed chamber, which will be thermally controlled to a tiny fraction of a degree. But in order to make the optics not move around and flex relative to one another, the entire optical bench on which the spectrograph is laid out is made of zerodur, which is the, the glass ceramic composite that we use for telescope mirrors at Keck and at other places. And the optical mounts are made out of zerodur. The optics are made out of zerodur. The entire instrument, except for the the actual detectors themselves will be made out of this, this material. And what they did is they got essentially a mirror blank that was, I think it was originally intended for a, a space telescope mission that got canceled or something like that. And they cut up that mirror blank to make the optical bench and all the optical components that will make up this new instrument. So that is the sort of extremes that, that these instrument builders go to in order to, 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 create something that can do these sorts of measurements and it's just it's fantastic it's great to work with with minds like that it reminds me a lot of what the, the the
1: pains they had to go through to get ligo all the noise sources reduced for ligo so they can measure gravitational waves so they the whole thing is made out of a uh, an optical an optical glass so that, that because of its thermal properties That's
0: exactly what,
1: yeah well i wanted to talk about exoplanets and, and make that transition because you said, uh, earlier on that you had started as an amateur astronomer and of course you're a professional astronomer now, but you still, I think, have your hand in the amateur hobby. Correct. You are, when I met you, you were promoting a citizen science initiative. And, um, could you talk about that just a little bit? Is that still going on and how was, how are things going since the last time we talked about it?
0: Yeah. So, um, I, like I said, I, I've been an amateur astronomer since I was a kid. I, I still go out and observe essentially on a monthly basis. Anytime the, the new moon rolls around, I'm looking at the calendar and the weather forecast, looking for an excuse to go out. Um, and there's actually a, a couple of other professional astronomers here on the island who are the same way. And one of the other ones, uh, his name is Olivia Guillon, and he's at Subaru Telescope. He is actually one of the world's experts in adaptive optics. Um, he's, he's a really interesting guy to talk to. And I can't take credit for this it was really his idea to do to try and build a very, very low cost uh, automatic observatory that could do transiting exoplanet searches. And that's what Panoptes is. And so the idea with Panoptes is using sort of off the shelf parts, you know, commercial telescope mounts and DSLR cameras, you can you can build a survey to look for transiting exoplanets. And rather than uh, get your sensitivity by having a really really large telescope, you get your sensitivity by having lots and lots of really really small telescopes working together. And so um, I joined this project with Olivier and helped out. um, And I've gone. uh, We've we've had a booth at NEEF the last couple of years. The last couple of years that it was it was happening in person. Since moving from Hilo to OMA, I haven't been quite as actively involved with Panoptes on a on a day to day basis because the the you know, sort of main center where they're still developing a few things is in Hilo. But I I sort of keep up with the project and it's, you know, charging along. We've got uh, support from NASA to do this as part of their citizen science initiative. And we've got um, one person who's uh, doing his PhD on the project. And then another person who's a postdoc who joined us just uh, last year um, to, to work on both sort of expanding the reach of the project, reaching more people, and to do some of the science with the data. And so, yeah, Panoptes is is really, really exciting. And I would encourage anybody who's interested in that sort of thing to, to look for us. Uh, projectpanoptes.org is our website. Um, it'll tell you how to get involved and, and how to build a unit, essentially completely open source. You can jump on there, get all the instructions, build a completely robotic observatory, and... Um, yeah, it's, it's actually a lot of fun and it's, it's just another way to sort of stay connected with the amateur community for me. So when I was last, um,
1: uh, uh, talking with you about this, you had a, a complete equipment list that included, I believe four or so, uh, Canon teleview or uh, zoom lenses. Is that right? Um, and then some DSLRs that went with it. And there was also an equipment list of mounts mounting things that you could could you that you could put together can you briefly describe some of that and and are these uh, things that uh, you mentioned it's off the shelf or at least it's open source are they reasonably easy to find these components
0: yeah i mean this is all stuff that that amateur astronomers would be familiar with so the original mount that uh, we designed for was an ioptron ieq 30 you know that's uh, there's there's been a number of changes over the years as you know what is available changes. So there's now the ZEQ and the CEM lines and things like that, um, and so we can basically drive a whole number of mounts. But um, so that's the sort of thing we're talking about. And then our our, our telescopes were just camera lenses. We used Rokinon cam- uh, camera lenses because they were oh, okay. all manual, so they could be sort of set in position and then left you know for long periods of time while it was operating and then Canon DSLRs just basically whatever the the low end sort of rebel line at the moment would would do the trick. So the whole goal with everything in Panoptes is to do good science with you know very very accessible equipment. You know, we didn't want anything that would be hyper expensive. We didn't want to have people have to do like modify dslr's we decided there's no need to modify these no need to pull off the ir ir filter or anything like that keep it simple keep it accessible to as many people as possible
1: and then once somebody has put all of this together uh, and built it according to your specs you guys actually control it is that right do i have that right
0: yes and no so um the software that the project has written has in it uh, essentially a database of targets to look at, you know, fields of view. And if you just load that software and, and set your thing up and say go, it'll go do those fields and it'll upload the data. But if you want to look at something else, just type that into the list of targets and it'll go take pictures of Andromeda or you know, whatever you're interested in looking at. So, you know, it's it's not a very centralized project with a lot of like central control. It's open source. Here's a cool thing. Go out, have some fun with it. And if you're taking real data, upload them to us. And we've got some partnerships with Google to do a lot of cloud computing. So that's where I think a lot of the, the work going into it right now is, is handling, you know, massive streams of data because there's tens of thousands of stars and even just a single dslr image these are 85 millimeter focal length lenses so very wide field compared to like research telescopes so from
1: an 80 from, from that kind of field of view you can measure tiny dips in brightness to the accuracy that you can determine the size of these planets that are that are that are in front of the star that's that's incredible is it biased toward any size planet like are you more likely to see hot jupiters than say uh super earths or something like
0: that yeah, so it, it's like all transit searches the easiest ones to see are big planets, so you know, hot Jupiters, uh, very large planets. But the the power of Panoptes comes from, you know, the multiplexing. You know, the more uh, data that is being contributed from the more units, the fainter you can go. So a single Panoptes unit can detect hot Jupiters, you know, the the you know, the deepest exoplanet transits uh, that we know of are sort of a percent or two and and we can do that like we can look at those with a single single camera and single lens. but if you want to get down to the super Earths, you got to start averaging together the light curves of lots and lots of Panoptes units. and so that's where it becomes a citizen science project because um, if if you want to see those smaller planets, you got to have everybody pitching in.
1: Are the data coming in now uh, or or is it uh, are... Is it still something you're putting together? You mentioned something with Google and the cloud. Uh, Is all of that infrastructure still being put together, or data being sent through and processed?
0: Yeah, so we're just sort of hitting that transition. Like most things, it's sort of like you know we have the data analysis software, but that is going to get tweaked and tweaked and tweaked for you know ages. Like we can can always always make that a little bit better. (laughs) Uh, Always, yeah. So a lot of the infrastructure is now in place to to handle uh, the data ingestion. I don't know the exact latest status of this software. I haven't been keeping up uh, super close uh, uh, track of exactly what's going on there. But basically, yeah, I can't remember. We have had a few dozen units in operation uh, last I checked.
1: Oh, okay. So people are starting to set them up and, and send you some data. So that's pretty cool. I know you're up on Mauna Kea. You guys are, there's lots of observatories up there. Lately, there has been some controversy uh, surrounding the, the site up there because it's, uh, it's, it's very important to the Native Hawaiians. And the 30-meter telescope was slated to start construction up there. Do, do, is that still going on, or do you know anything about that? Because I was curious about what the status was. The alternative, if it did not begin construction, was they were going to go to the Canary Islands and build there.
0: Right. So, the current status with the 30 meter telescope is um, there were protests uh, at the start of construction. And so, there was essentially a delay in the construction and now, further with the pandemic. And essentially, what they've done is sort of um, replan the schedule, and they're now going to, in all likelihood, hopefully, partner with the U.S. national community. So all of this is happening because uh, we are about to, to get released, I think later this year, uh, what's called the Decadal Survey, um, which is an effort that the the U.S. astronomy community does every 10 years, and it's basically to try and come to some form of consensus on these are the highest priority projects for sort of federal funding for NASA and the NSF for the next 10 years. The 30-meter telescope project uh, is, is essentially proposing to be part of something called the US ELT, the US Extremely Large Telescope Program. And there's a, a, another telescope uh, called the Giant Magellan Telescope, which is sort of a 22-ish meter telescope. That would be built in Chile. And basically the idea is is that the two would partner, they would get some funding from the U.S. national community so that all the astronomers in the U.S. would have access to these two telescopes. But that decision on applying funding to those projects is waiting on the results of the decadal survey. Because if the decadal survey comes out and says, eh, we don't really need a really large telescope, then the NSF is not likely to fund that. Um, and so the NSF is sort of waiting to hear what uh, the, the decadal survey says, and I, I forget the exact timeline. Um, yeah, it'll be so later that's this where year. Where the project is right now? Yeah, the, the decadal survey
1: is a big deal, and I'm looking to hear about the future space telescopes from that as well. I think we'll hopefully we'll get Louvoir out of it, but the uh, uh, it's scheduled to release their results I think later this year. Well, then let me ask you this about the 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 fact you're. It sounds like building new telescopes up on that mountain is gonna get harder, if not impossible. What does Keck do to what are their policies about being up there? You can't just do anything up there, right? You've got to be careful about how you handle being up on the mountaintop. What does Keck do? What what sort of policies do they
0: have to protect that right. environment? The University of Hawaii um, is has the master lease from the mountain, there's subleases to each of the of the telescopes. And there um, is a series of documents that have been written in the last sort of 20 odd years now, including a master plan for Mauna Kea. And so the plan moving forward for Mauna Kea as an observatory is that master plan contains the idea that the area that is developed, like the, the footprint of each of the observatories is up there, plus one additional site, which is where TMT was going to go, or hopefully still is. That is the limit of where development can occur, and so the master plan sort of lays out where the telescopes can go. And the site for TMT was selected because it was uh, further down the slope of the mountain. In fact, it's it's well below the the site for Keck Observatory, which is itself below the actual summit. And it was selected for uh, you know to be you know, conscious of cultural concerns. So one of the goals was that from the actual summit where there's a a very small stone altar, that TMT would actually not be visible from that point. Um, It would have minimum visibility from the rest of the island. You know, obviously we work within that plan. And then there's a whole bunch of rules about what you can do up on the mountain. So one of the concerns actually on Mount Akea, uh, one of the neat things about the big island of Hawaii is it has almost every climactic zone uh, that exists on the earth exists on this island, except for the most know, extreme desert and the most extreme <laughs> Arctic. But the area at the top of the mountains is a very small um, sort of ecological niche, and so there's certain things that uh, we you know take into account whenever we do activities up there. So, for example, our cars get washed every single day before driving up, so that we don't carry ants or any other sort of invasive species up to the mountain anytime we send a large you know creative equipment up that has to get inspected to make sure the wood isn't infested with something again to keep the invasive species um, out of that area everybody who works at the observatory has to do um, a training about the sort of uh, cultural and ecological sort of history and significance of mauna kea there's so there's a lot that observatories are doing now, which hasn't always been the case. I mean, the observatories have been there since basically the late 60s, if I remember my history correctly. Um, So there's actually a lot that we're doing right now, sort of along these lines. And I think TMT was, it was designed with all of this in mind. So I'll get in a little bit more in the history. In the late 90s, there was a State of Hawaii auditor that essentially audited the UH management of Mauna Kea and it was very critical. It basically said UH is managing this as if it is its private observatory and they are not considering other uses of the land, which I think at the time was fair. I mean, that was a fair criticism. And so since then UH in the intervening 20 odd years has created the master plan and a comprehensive management plan and, and the new management of Mount Akea is actually, it's no longer being managed by the UH's astronomy department, essentially. It's now managed by an independent agency that is supposed to take into account the scientific, ecological, and cultural aspects of the mountain and to balance all of that. So um, the TMT was designed in that latter era. And so that's why the site was chosen much further down the slopes of the mountain and um, obviously it's being done in a very sort of ecologically friendly way. TMT, for example will be a zero waste facility. there is a, all of the uh, wastewater uh, will be trucked down off the mountain. it won't be in any sort of septic system or anything like that. I, I think some of the anger and some of the the protests come from a you know very understandable uh, feeling that in the past other, concerns were ignored. And I think that's true. But I think that the the environment around Mauna, Mauna Kea has changed a lot in the last 20 years because of this. But I think that it's still seen, I think Mauna Kea is seen as a symbol for a lot of other ills in the state of Hawaii. I
1: I think you're, yes, you're exactly right. That's
0: really what it comes down
1: to. Yep. And there's a lot more there than just building observatories. So, um, well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And it also ties into what we were talking about a little bit with the beginning with doing it with the pandemic. And a lot of people don't actually need to be up there anymore, not like they used to be. And so I think that'll only help maybe sort of make it a more friendlier place for for the environment to be and for the concerns of the native people so well thank you for taking time to talk about it with me i appreciate that it's always a source of interest to me to to know what the latest is up on the mountain because i spent many years over on mauna loa on the solar observatory over there and we always used to look over going
0: gee what's what's going on over there (laughs) so the panoptes prototype the panoptes prototype is right next to the mauna loa solar observatory oh i did not know that it is that no. it's that facility. In fact, when I was a postdoc, I worked at a project that was over at the Mount Olo Observatory. So I spent quite a bit of time over it, over on Mount Loa.
1: Oh, I need to call my buddy over there. I hadn't I talked to the observer that's up there in, in, in years. I should see you actually call him up and see if he's, see if he's uh, knows about that. So cool. All right. Well, um, I want to, Josh, I want to thank you so much for taking time out to be with us. This has been really great uh, sharing some insights into what it's like to be a professional astronomer up at the one of the world's largest observatories, the Keck Observatory. And uh, good luck with, the, with all of the things you're doing and with Panoptes and all this stuff that's happening out there. I hope it goes really well. On behalf okay. of Dustin Gibson, I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up.